Hi, thanks for joining me today as I talk with life coach and business expert for intercultural and international communications in Japan, Catherine Gronauer. Businesses today, we have Catherine joining us from Tokyo. Thanks so much for joining, Catherine. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So, Catherine, I didn't ask you how to say your last name.、Uh, can you tell us? <laughs> yes, it's Gronauer. Gronauer, okay. And、uh, you are running Thrive Tokyo. You founded Thrive Tokyo. Tell us a little bit about your business. Yeah, so I'm basically a trainer and a coach, and I help foreigners learn how to live and work in Japan. So I do a combination of cross cultural training,、um, orientation programs on how to build your day to day routine,、um, and also executive coaching as well. So I work with people either privately or I go to corporations and I do group facilitations. So that's a little bit about me in a nutshell. And how did you get started doing this kind of work? That is a very loaded question. <laughs> I have. So, I, I started a business、um, about five or six years ago, and my intention was to be a health coach. And I wanted to, you know, I was very specific with helping primarily women with weight loss and、uh, Eastern holistic nutrition. That was kind of、uh, my interest and the things that I wanted to do and establish as a business. Um, but in the process of helping people、uh, learn about health and wellness, I realized that people didn't know how to shop in, in grocery stores in Japan. And so I was like, okay, let's just take things, just take a step back and just learn how to like shop in a store, how to like, you know, be more confident taking the transportation, you know, and just trying to do things that they, they feel they can kind of live, live life a little bit more on their own terms. And I was also finding through coaching that、um, kind of the biggest sources of emotional stress were really related to the workplace. So,、um, you know, people were not feeling like they were integrating very well、um, within their companies. So, my business kind of pivoted to just, you know, it was very simple. I just started by offering. You know, some people、uh, an opportunity to do, to do a grocery store tour together. And I was really amazed at how much, how many inquiries I was getting for that. So I was like, okay, maybe there's more things that people need help with in these areas.、Um, and then that's how I kind of segued into doing corporate training as well for、um, cross cultural education. So、uh, my company, Thrive Tokyo, the concept is to help people thrive. So,、uh, for some people, that could mean、uh, learning more about the cultural aspect of being in Japan. And for others, that could be about establishing their work life balance. So,、um, you know, the, the concept of Thrive is essentially an umbrella that would cover each of those areas. Yeah, so interesting and so important. And、uh, people might be wondering how is coaching, how is onboarding to a business, how is helping people acclimatize to life in Japan, how is that connected to sustainability? Well, in terms of sustainability, we want societies, we want communities where people have a high quality of life. So they enjoy their life, they enjoy their work. That's an important part of the seeking sustainability balance, right? People, planet, profits in balance.、Um, so,、yeah. the kind of work that you're doing to help people adjust to their new reality is, is so important. So, thank you so much for sharing your insights. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, companies hire people from abroad for a specific reason. And so you want to make sure that person is, is supported so that they don't leave the company prematurely. So that's also part of the sustainability aspect as well is just making sure that people are staying in your companies longer. Definitely. Because there's a there's a high cost to that as well. If you have high employee turnover, you're not taking care of them, you're not helping them acclimatize. uh, You have to pay for that extra training, you have to pay for that extra hiring process. So there's also a bottom line component to that, right? Yeah, so there's kind of the costs that were associated with hiring a person who didn't stay. So you're kind of missing out on that cash. Plus, you have all the costs involved with trying to replace the person. Um, So yeah, overall, it just winds up being very expensive for people to wind up leaving prematurely. And you don't want someone to wind up leaving just because they, you know, felt like they weren't able to have any friends outside of their their workplace, for example, or, you know, weren't able to integrate or didn't understand things that were happening in the office. It's very multi-nai. Yeah, for sure. And of course, uh, dangerous in in a way as well. And I know you talk about this in your consulting and and coaching is finding help uh, for mental illness or stress if you want counseling. So there, there are some serious consequences to not having the support when you're coming in as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've talked with people who, um, who work as therapists. And, you know, some of the things that they help with specifically are, are things like culture shock, um, you know, people who don't really know what their purpose is for being here, and they kind of fall into this feeling of depression. Um, because they're trying to find themselves, they feel like they don't have the control over the day to day living that they might maybe used to have back in their hometown. Um, so yeah, it can be it can be very serious um, for some people if they if they're not supported for their transition. Yeah, uh, let's start with the basics. What okay. are some basic uh, tips that you can give people who are first arriving in Japan? Maybe they've got their own place, but in your orientation life Japan uh, advice, what are some of the things that you focus on there? Yeah, so for the orientation program, um, I really cover very basic things that are related to what's going to affect people on a day-to-day basis. So that includes things like the different types of transportation systems in Japan, um, again, the grocery shopping, um, uh, going to the drugstores as well. I know many people wind up bringing their shampoos and you know toothpaste and deodorants and things from abroad because they don't really know what they're picking in uh, a drugstore. Um, I was talking to one fellow, uh, he really cracked me up. He said that he was he thought he was buying toothpaste, but it turned out to be hemorrhoid cream. <laughs> so just, oh, you know, no. that's yeah, a really big sure. mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really big mistake. But you know, people don't really know what they're selecting. And they want and, and, and part of it is kind of like a fear of picking the wrong thing. But also, there's like a big curiosity that people want to know, like what's available to them. And, you know, uh, just going back to something simple, like transportation, um, you know, it really just depends on on the person. Some people you meet are very adventurous, and they can't wait to, you know, try out getting on the train and, and going and exploring different areas. But there's also a lot of people who are just so terrified of getting onto the train and getting lost or getting off at the wrong location. And, and because of a lack of the language capabilities, they don't really know how to find their way back. 
So what happens is people might wind up being a hermit because, you know, they only really know how to go to their home and their office and back from their home to their office and back, but they don't really know how to engage with other things. Um, I've also talked to people who have you know, try to go to events, but they only use taxis because they're too, they don't know how to like read maps or how to understand Japanese addresses. So um, it's about essentially giving people that feeling of independence that they can, you know, live life on their own terms without kind of these fears of the things that are going to to happen in the process. So other than, you know, transportation and uh, grocery stores and drug stores, there's also things like post offices that we cover as well. So yeah, I would say that's just kind of the general scope. It's for uh, specifically for day-to-day -day living. And um, I've also seen some uh, kind of general orientations before, um, but I feel like most orientations I've, I've seen typically cover things like what to do in an emergency. Like if you, you know, randomly need surgery, like here are the English speaking hospitals and that's all information that's really good to have or you know what's what should you do in an earthquake uh, situation or a disaster and you know it's really really important information however people also need help more with a day-to-day -day living and if anything i think we need this more than we might need those um, other kind of general information uh, for things that might happen once over the course of the time that you're you're here in the country yeah. So that's yeah. so true. And it's, it's really, there's a gap, isn't there between the the easy to access information for visitors, which is maybe great if you're traveling. Um, but for new residents, they kind of need a different kind of information. Of course, the like you said, the emergency information is really useful. But there's so much more like daily life type of advice, which definitely people need and crave when they when they come one of the big selling points of course for new residents or travelers is how safe japan is and you can pretty much travel public transport any time of day yeah. as a woman even a child you see kids going to and from school on their own um yeah, yeah that's a great selling point isn't it yeah. And, you know, I'll give you an example um, of a woman who I met uh, who was interested in learning just about, you know, shopping at a grocery store. So it's something very simple. And um, uh, because this kind of ties into the, the concept of how tourists need something different from people who are living here. So when you're living here, it means that you're not just dining out and exploring all of the you know, restaurants and things like that, like you're trying to develop your own routine at home. And when I met her, I said, Okay, you know, what do you want to focus on? Uh, what is your your reason for reaching out to me? She said, Well, you know, I really want to uh, make banana bread. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where this is going, because I don't really know much about uh, helping someone with banana bread. But, um, you know, I just dug further to try to find out what uh, what she meant by that. And it turns out that one of her most favorite pastimes is baking. And she's the kind of person who likes to make baked goods and bring them to her office and give them to her fellow coworkers. And that's something that she hadn't been able to do for the year and a half that she had already been in Japan. And uh, the kind of blocks that she was experiencing was that um, not only did she, she didn't, first of all, she didn't know what flour looks like um, 
in Japan. So she doesn't know like, what is she supposed to look for? Is it something, is there something different about flour in Japan versus flour outside of Japan? Is she supposed to use a different amount of flour, uh, you know, and the ratios uh, when she's baking? She also realized that even if she could find the venues that carry the types of flour she's looking for, she doesn't really know how to take the public transportation to get there and how to read an address to get to that location. Um, and even if she could do all of that and actually get the flour, she doesn't know how to use her microwave oven at home and use the functions so that she can actually do the baking. So um, you can see in just some, you know, a very, very simple task of trying to make banana bread, there's layers and layers of challenges that a person has around that. And for her in particular, something like baking is, is her, her form of having her personal time. It's her, it's something that's really meaningful to her. It's something she likes to enjoy doing on, on a regular basis. So to, for her to not be able to do that just because of these obstacles, um, it kind of doesn't leave the sense of good, you know, work-life balance or fulfillment for her. So, um, you know, tangibly, it might sound like I'm just helping someone with, you know, finding a bag of flour, but what it means to her goes really far beyond that. It's really about having that confidence and that form of engagement with a task that she really enjoys, an activity she enjoys doing. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, there are so many layers that you're helping with. It's not just getting the right flower. It's not just doing the shopping. It's also getting there, uh, doing the transport, using the uh, oven, in, you know, yeah. which is mostly in Japanese or just a different style of appliance than you're used to. Right. But also there's the the business component of bringing homemade goods to the office, which you would help support her and let her know. Yeah, everybody would be really Really happy if you did that. Um, you don't have to, and they might feel bad and give you a gift back. That's Japanese culture, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I remember when I, I first came many years ago as a jet uh, was making chocolate chip cookies for my office because I, I similarly loved uh, baking cookies. And I remember this is many years ago before there were many chocolate chip cookies in the shops and it was a real hurdle to to be able to make it but once i i gave it to everybody i was so happy to offer it to everyone and i remember a lot of the older staff saying oh it's too sweet you know but then they would give me the japanese sweets and i thought wow these are super sweet you know yeah <laughs> so it's kind of like an interesting intercultural relationship as well <laughs> yeah, yeah, food is a really interesting way of connecting with people for sure. And yeah, just hearing people how they have different tastes. And I got to tell you, I'm still looking for the perfect chocolate chip cookie here in Japan. No <laughs> Not quite the same. <laughs> yeah, I think I haven't had as good as I've been able to make. And that's always disappointing, right? You're you're always looking for the perfect cafe version. And especially now yeah. I've changed to be a vegan. So it's even harder. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I interviewed a woman in Osaka, and she's making the most amazing vegan brownies and cookies. So I, I try to I'm, order I'm from a her. I'm a fan of the of the plant based ones for sure. I got to tell you, like using you know, if you wanted to make a chocolate chip cookie with almond flour, I think that tastes amazing. It's like a really great substitute, especially if you want to get that buttery flavor. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I talked to a guy yesterday who does coconut imports 
And I was saying, oh, coconut oil is so important for all the vegan alternative recipes, right? Um, so here is your orientation, like what you do, how you do it, why work with you. Um, so basically what you were talking about, about uh, giving people the tangible, uh, what things they're going to need to to understand in terms of the gap between cultures, um, practical how to do it, and then the reason why to do it. And I love this part uh, you were saying in the why that you were born to a bilingual multicultural family. So that helps you with more insights. Is that right? Yeah. So my mother is Japanese and my father is American. And I was raised primarily in Florida, but I visited Japan every single summer. And I essentially went back and forth um, during my grade school years. And I actually went to elementary school for a little bit here in Japan as well. Um, and then when I was in college, I decided to go to university in Japan. So at this point of my life, I've probably literally spent 50% of my time in both locations, I would say. Wow, interesting. Uh, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, before we talk about the business onboarding side of it, which I, I think is really important and interesting, uh, Richard's asking, is there a way to calibrate the voice input with written English? I don't think you can do that on Facebook. I think it's an automated thing from using AI technology. So I'm afraid I don't think you can calibrate that. Sorry, Richard. Uh, thanks for joining Molly. Molly is in the US and she's often a supporter of the series. Great to see you guys here. Um, so Catherine, one of the main uh, things that you do is helping with onboarding. And you wrote this great article about some of the gaps for onboarding with foreign talent. Can you walk through some of those uh, gaps for us? Yes, absolutely. So I would say that, you know, up until this point of uh, the business that I've been doing, companies will either hire me to do cross-cultural training, or they'll hire me for a wellness program, or they might hire for uh, something related to orientation, like people have just come into the country and they need orientation. And the thing is, they, they need a combination of each if you want to make it sustainable and have support more, you know, long term. So I would say that uh, for starters, um, one thing that I see companies do is they don't necessarily make the cross-cultural training mandatory. And I always find that interesting. So I can I can show up to a training expecting there to be 20 people. And then maybe if only 15 people show up, it's kind of like, okay, these these five people are going to have to wait maybe six months until the next time we do a training, or it could be the, a, a year if, if the company only is uh, offering the cross-cultural training once a year. And that's a really long time for someone to, to go without having that really essential information on how to make sense of your workplace. Um, so I'd say trying to make it mandatory is a really important thing. Um, the other thing that I see as, a, as kind of a, a problem, I would say, is um, sometimes companies uh, might support a person who's coming into the country with uh, relocation. So they might hire a relocation company to help with the visa processing and, and a real estate agent and those elements to help them get a, get a home and get settled in. But then after that, there's no support. And I think sometimes companies don't realize that the, the adjustment that happens in the process of 
of transitioning to, to work, it also really needs to be something that's supported. And what winds up happening is you might have relocation that starts um, from the beginnings, the person has the support with getting an apartment, but then they might not have a cross-cultural training set up until maybe six months later. So there's a total gap between the support they get when they first arrive and then the opportunity to, to talk to someone about it maybe six months later. Um, so I would say that's, you know, there's, there's essentially that gap that kind of needs to be uh, uh, filled uh, where person has access to support while they're trying to get assimilated. Yeah, so, you're, you're showing yeah. there's like a dip. And it, I guess yeah. for, for many things, uh, new jobs, new marriages, uh, you have the honeymoon period, right? So at first, you get a lot of support, um, you feel great, you're in a new exciting place, and then kind of reality sets in and you start to notice things that you maybe don't like so much or things you're confused about. Is that kind of yeah. where the chart is heading? Yeah, exactly. And I'm so glad that you're showing this as well. So we call this chart the expat life cycle. And as you said, it's it's very similar kind of um, chart that shows people going through some type of life transition. Um, so essentially what you're looking at is a person's rate of happiness over time. And uh, initially you see the line is going up because when someone first comes to Japan, they're kind of in that honeymoon phase uh, of feeling like a tourist. So you're so excited about exploring Japan, about seeing all of the interesting differences and, you know, trying all the food and, you know, and the restaurants and going shopping. And, you know, it's a very fun and exciting time. Um, but at that point number two that you see on the chart where it starts to dip, that's kind of when reality hits and people realize, okay, I I'm not on vacation. Like I'm not getting on a plane to go back home now. Like I'm actually living here. And then maybe they start to think, okay, instead of dining out every single night and trying all the Japanese food, maybe I should actually start to cook in my own, you know, kitchen, but I don't know how to use the fish grill that's there. I don't know where to find the foods that I, I like to prepare other than pasta and tomato sauce, or, um, you know, they maybe they're looking for, you know, a gym community that they can start to go to or a yoga class. And they realize that they start need to start kind of building their day-to-day -day routine, but they don't really have the resources or information they need to do that. Um, and then you see that it, the, the line kind of continues down uh, to the point we have number three, and that would, we would say is essentially kind of your culture shock or depression um, type of state. And usually what I feel is happening there is on one hand, people might not feel fully integrated to work, but they also don't have any friends outside of work um, either. So there really isn't like this emotional support system. And on top of that, um, maybe they've been sharing about their Japan journey to their friends and family back home. But after you've been here for six months or so, nobody back home really kind of cares or can engage or understand you know, the things that you're going through. Um, so there, there isn't really that that type of person you can reach out to who can understand what you're what you're going through with the transition. Um, so you know, beyond that, though, people people start to get into a routine within their own limitations or within the own the the knowledge that they do have, and that's where we get to the point number four here, which is essentially uh, acceptance. So acceptance could mean um, 
not it's not necessarily a positive thing but it's also not negative it just means that you realize that you're going to be here for a while and you're just kind of doing the best that you can um, and maybe you have started to make some connections and things are getting a bit easier maybe you have started to build a routine but um you know essentially if people don't have information they have and, and support they have to figure all of these little things out on their own um and if people have more support up front or through that transition then they can really cut through from the point one on the line to the point four, maybe <laughs> without having to dip into that uh, depressive culture shock phase. So that's how I like to kind of use the expat life cycle to illustrate that. And that's really important for people to understand that this is very normal and everybody goes through it. And some people go through it faster. Some people go through it slower. There's different things that might happen along the way to make your line longer or shorter, right? Uh, yeah. Different experiences or different support you might have. Um, but just knowing that this is a normal up and down, I think a lot of people would not expect this to happen so just being yeah. aware that this is happening to everybody you know don't worry and that just makes you feel yeah. better in itself right yeah exactly and i like to usually when i'm meeting up with a new client i like to show this chart and we like to and talk about it and say okay where do you feel you are on this on this chart right now and i gotta tell you that um the time it takes to get from one phase to another really depends on the individual but I, I find that for the most part, people who are professionals who are working, it could take maybe six months to a year before they get kind of down into that uh, feeling a bit down. Whereas uh, a person who's a spouse might go through the process a lot faster. So I met a woman who was only in Japan on her second month and she was already feeling really uh, homesick and depressed. So um, again, it really depends on your purpose for being here. So if you're the kind of person who is really interested in Japanese culture, maybe you started studying the language a bit and you're just very excited about all the things that you're gonna learn here, then you might feel totally fine for the first year or two as you experience each of the seasons a couple of times. Um, and then after that, you start to think, okay, is there something else I should be doing with my life? Maybe I want to get into a different industry with your career. And so then that's kind of when people start to uh, feel like they, they need a little bit more support of how to create their own sense of balance in this country. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, if you come here because let's say, for example, you're a spouse and um, you're, you're only here because of your partner's job, uh, you really don't know what else you could do here because you don't have language capabilities or some type of skill set to get an English oriented job. Um, then all of a sudden you might get into that dip very uh, much sooner and uh, just trying to figure out all the day to day activities. Maybe you have to take care of kids at home as well and trying to get your your kids situated with with having their routine, but you don't know how the information to help you do that. Um, so the, the challenges that people go through really depends on uh, the mental state that they're at when they arrive at Japan, I would say. Yeah. And I imagine your work is very case by case, very yeah. individually catered um, to the actual situation because everybody comes with different experiences, different baggage. And that, of course, also affects their experience uh, into a new company in Japan or into life lifestyle, right? Absolutely. I think everybody I meet is either they're at some different stage in their journey. 
And they also have totally different attitudes and they also have different things that they want to focus on um, throughout this process. So a lot of it is interconnected, but um, it's just meeting people where they're at in their particular journey. Yeah, awesome. Uh, let's talk about one of the specifics, which I think is probably really helpful for people, not only in the workplace, but in any kind of interpersonal relationship in Japan, is how to read people. So that's yeah. one of your your things that you do for your consulting and coaching. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think uh, the concept of being able to read people, I think is uh, interesting. You, you basically want to be able to understand how a person is thinking, because I think that is the biggest blocker for people who are working in Japan, is that they, they can, they see someone doing something differently, and they see the person's reaction, but they don't understand why they're doing it or why they're having a certain thought process, or especially some people don't understand people's body language in Japan, too. So, you know, Japanese people, instead of using verbal language to communicate, they might go, mm, 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 or ha, mm, like these kind of like, you know, throat sounds and, and things that people just don't don't understand what it, what is going on with that. Um, so by being able to read people, it's really understanding, okay, in certain type of circumstances, you know, people like to communicate in this way, or they like to use this type of procedure to get gain approval, or they like to use this type of procedure for decision making, or this is the thought process behind uh, why meetings are structured a certain way. Uh, once people can kind of understand the thought process behind it, then it, it takes this whole weight of, of stress off of them because they can understand what the person is about to do or what they might be thinking and they can better navigate those conversations with the person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first came to uh, Japan as a jet on the jet program and uh, I, I started mimicking the body language and the gestures and stuff. And that helped me communicate better. And then even on the telephone, I would be uh -huh. bowing and doing yeah. like this gesture or pointing to myself, my nose instead of my chest. Like I, I had yeah. completely learned all of the, the new gestures and it was make cracking people up whenever mm -hmm. I visited home and they're like, your gestures are so funny. Where did you learn that? You know, yeah, <laughs> it, I know. it I helps you acclimatize to your new situation too, right? It does. Absolutely. And I think especially in Japan where people um, are using body language uh, as a big, big part of communication and not just words, um, it's also really helpful to kind of get, you know, get on board with that and also start to do the mimicking too. I think it really helps with communication. This talk show and podcast is held every weekday, 9 a.m., 12 noon or 5 p.m. Japan time to talk with guests from around Japan and highlight the great work that they're doing keeping the quality of life and quality of our planet in balance with profits. All of the shows are 60 minutes long, enough time for listeners to learn about the innovation and expertise of the guest, as well as consider connections to sustainability. Because we are in Japan, 
I'm in Hiroshima, and my guests are from all over Japan. Listeners are also able to hear about life, culture, heritage, traditions in Japan, as well as Japanese specific innovation or travel destinations. Uh, one of the things that you also offer as part of your coaching, it looks like, is the Accelerate program, which is, it sounds yeah. like it's kind of a community support, private community support. Is that right? Yes, it is. So this is actually a platform I've been developing um, since about October of 2020. And, you know, right now we do have people who are in the community, although it is a little sparse because of the COVID situation. So I'm waiting for people to kind of come into the country now. But essentially, it has all of the content that I would cover in an orientation uh, divided up into uh, making the move and then also just dealing with the day to day. And also I have some info on business etiquette or social etiquette as well. So it's essentially um, a platform with a library of resources that people can access at any time of their journey. And the reason that's so important is because when I when I meet people who first arrive, if I was to tell them all the orientation info within one day, even though it's helpful, sometimes people don't need all of that info until a later time. So for example, if I talk about post offices when you first arrive, you might not need that info until you send a package eight months later or something like that. And by then it's really hard to kind of recall what that information is. So I wanted to create a platform that people could have access to where they could essentially get the resources that they need at the time that they need it. And all of the content is focused on one platform so they don't have to go searching in different places. And I think another great thing about having it focused in one platform is that people who don't know what they don't know can actually stumble upon other types of information that are really going to enhance their their day-to-day -day living. Yeah. And a great part about the platform too is there's also a community uh, forum function. So if they want to interact with other people or, and introduce themselves there, they can do that and I can answer questions directly. And uh, my plan with this platform, uh, once the borders start to open and we have more people coming in, is to have it um, as a platform that's structured in tandem with the programs I offer. So if I'm gonna do a cross-cultural training program, I would want people to uh, have access to the platform while I'm simultaneously doing the cross-cultural training and onboarding support. Um, and it's just gonna be a really great uh, platform and tool to help people support them through that journey. So I was talking about how they have like a gap between relocation and training so they can have actual support in between. It's such a good idea. And to have this for people who sign up for your program that they can access at any time at their own speed uh, when they have a need for it, maybe later on or discover things. And these are common yeah. things you know that they will need because of your experience. So that's a great resource. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that, you know, companies, for example, could either have people access it as just for platform use and group uh, training. Um, but if they want to, they can also add on an option of doing one to one sessions with um, with individuals. Um, and I also have a third option, which would be to have um, executives do the entire program privately. Wow, nice. It's great to have different tiers, uh, different kinds of clients and be able to cater on different levels, but still have standard information that's useful for everybody. It's a great idea. Yes.
Uh, one of the interesting things for lifestyle, which I, I saw that you offer, is about eating in Japan. And, yeah. and this is funny because when I, I grew up in Hawaii and I went to university in California, so I always assumed I knew everything about Japanese food. But when I came to live in Japan, I realized life in Japan and eating Japanese food is so much different from the export Japanese food culture, right? So this is a Absolutely. great, great uh, program you're offering. Tell us about it a little bit. Yes, thank you. So this photo was uh, taken at one of my Food in Japan sessions that I had offered to people who are interested in understanding more about, you know, what's on their plate and also dining culture in Japan as well. Um, so yeah, we essentially spend the first hour or so talking about where they can source food products that they're looking for, and then also uh, the dining culture and the menus, and um, you know just how how Japanese food is also served. You know, one thing that's so interesting is if you if you go to have high end dining for traditional Japanese cuisine, they usually start with the least cooked food item all the way to the most cooked food items. So you might start with sashimi first, then you might get some boiled items, then some grilled items, and then fried items. So it gets more and more cooked as the meal goes along. Um, so just sharing people with people like little tidbits like that, or um, how to understand how menus pricings are structured, those types of things I like to share too. And uh, this kind of element to how I structured it really came from my background in uh, concierge work. So before I started my business, I used to work for an international concierge company where I was helping a lot of local expats with day to day living or tourists who are coming to the country. And one question, uh, one request that I got multiple times that I was always really surprised by was it usually went something like this. Um, let's say a guy wants to go to have sushi and he says, I want to go to like a three star Michelin sushi restaurant, you know, best, best of the best sushi we can have. By the way, my wife is pregnant and she can't have raw fish. Can you tell that to the chef? And I'm sitting there thinking like, hell no, I'm not telling that to the chef. <laughs> you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not going to call up a three star Michelin <laughs> sushi place and say, yeah, this guy's not having any raw fish. But um, I was really confused because I was wondering, like, why am I getting this question? Because it wasn't just once. I would say probably over the course of my time there, I got it a good maybe 40 times. Someone, someone wants to eat sushi, but they can't eat raw fish. And it was confusing. And I realized that, you know, if you're in a place like America, going to a Japanese restaurant means you, you eat all foods in one establishment. So you can sit at a Japanese sushi bar and order katsudon or something, whatever is on the menu. Um, and it really doesn't matter where you're sitting or what you're ordering, because that's the experience people are familiar with. But when you come to Japan, you have everything is senmon. So all of the all of the restaurants kind of cater to a specific type of cuisine. So if you go to a ramen shop, you know, the only thing on the menu is going to be different variations of ramen. And the same with sushi, if you're going to have sushi, you're pretty much only going to have sushi. Um, on the menu. So just little things like that, I realized that people don't have like a grasp or understanding of uh, not only the cuisine and, and the restaurants here, but also things like, you know, going to an izakaya and not understanding the all you can drink menus or, you know, family style dining and how to sit in a horikotatsu style uh, seating structure. Like there's just, a, again, a lot of layers uh, that people kind of have to learn and pick up along the way. So just giving them more of that info up front to make sure that they're clear 
on how things are structured and then it helps them go ahead and uh, engage with it uh, next time. That is so interesting. And that is such an interesting counterpoint uh, when I do consulting for restaurants or destinations in Japan. And I always suggest that even if you're a sushi restaurant, even if you are a sake brewer and you have tastings, you should have a non-alcoholic drink at the sake brewery. You should have a vegan vegetarian option at the yakiniku place or the sushi shop. You, you should, because if you yeah. want international visitors, they usually come in groups. And inside the group, or even like you said, even in a couple, you're very likely to have one person who really wants to eat it and one person who can't or doesn't want to eat it. So having yeah. a bit more flexibility instead of the typical Japanese way of saying, no, this is all we do and we do it well and you should respect it. You know, it's very different culture in terms of food, yeah. right? Yes, absolutely. I think that the mentality in Japan is if you're coming to our establishment, you're here to eat our kind of, you know, expert cuisine. Whereas in a place like America, you can go to a place and order steak and potatoes and ask them to substitute it for salmon and, you know, broccoli and they'll do it. <laughs> so it's all about catering towards the customer and customizing for the customer. So yeah, and that's, it's not just in a place like the States, that's really something that you see in, in many different parts of the world. And I think it's, um, something that people, a roadblock people definitely run into when they're here in Japan. Definitely. Uh, Brett has a good point in LA. Vegetarian sushi is also available in LA. Mm -hmm. So of course, and travelers are used to this. Um, but yeah. that is often a hurdle for travelers to Japan, the lack of flexibility. I know you talked about uh, why is customer service so good in Japan? And it is really good. But if you ask for something different from usual, then it's really bad. They're not good at flexibility here but they do what they do really well so if you want exactly what they do you're going to get high high customer service it's very interesting part of the culture isn't it yeah i absolutely agree with that i think you know as long as it's within their structure and the things that they practice well um then yeah absolutely great uh, customer service but when it comes to flexibility not so much and i think you see it as the opposite in other places it's very, you know, casual, maybe not super high quality, but you can always ask for some type of flexibility. So that's definitely what the, the shift is here in Japan. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, switch gears a little bit that I love that talking about food, I could talk about food all day. <laughs> yeah. um, let's let's talk about gender a little bit. You have a sure. trivia article, your blog is great. I love all your trivia blogs. Um, you talk about culture shock by gender. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, I was I was hired once to talk about kind of like women in, in Japan for, you know, a group of uh, foreign women who are at a company. And I had heard that some of them were struggling because they felt like things were different in the workplace. And, um, you know, the, the element that I had put here in this article was that when I am meeting men and women, they both talk about the same exact problems and culture that they have. They don't understand things, so there's communication difficulties. Uh, they feel like their performance is being overlooked. Uh, they feel like they don't understand why they're having so many meetings and they don't understand the point of meetings. Um, or they just don't understand how to build relationships in the company. So there's the, the, the things that I hear are always the same. However, 
the explanations or the reasons people give for those things or the assumptions that they make are a little different. So for example, um, if a man is having trouble with communication, they're like, okay, maybe they just don't understand me. Maybe I'm not saying it the right way. A woman would say, okay, maybe they don't understand me. Maybe I'm not saying it the right way. Or maybe it's because I'm a woman. So I feel like that, that element of gender tends to come into play more for women than it does to me from men. And also women notice a lot here that when they're working in, the, in, in a Japanese um, office, they do feel like there's this sense of uh, masculine society. So that's always interesting. I always ask people at the beginning of my trainings, what do you notice is kind of different or unique about being in Japan? I'll always have at least one woman in the room saying, oh, it feels very masculine here. So, you know, masculine is kind of open to interpretation, um, but I would say it could be balance wise. Maybe there's more men in the company than there are women, or maybe they don't see women in leadership positions. So there, there are women there, but there may be secretaries or people who are in junior level positions. And then once it starts getting up to 40 people who are 40 plus, you don't really see women as much. So um, I would say it just really comes down to the observances that women have when they're here and also um, just the the assumptions that they make about the reasons uh, behind the frustrations that they're having at the workplace. That's it's really good advice and very important. Yeah. Of course, uh, most business structure still in Japan is male dominated. And that is something to consider when coming to Japan. But if you are hired by a company as a woman, you should be treated fairly. And most companies do have policies in place to address that now. So it, it has improved. It's not perfect, but it has improved. Yeah, it has been as well. And I have one client who, for example, is a, a, a director here. And, you know, she's probably in her 40s. And, you know, she always notices that it's a lot easier to communicate with pretty much anybody who's younger than her, no matter what the gender is. But then for some reason, talking to men who are 50 plus, she feels like there's like a a, a lack of engagement. Um, so I think that's also another thing that people might notice um, in particular. And there's definitely shifts happening generation to generation, but we're still kind of in, in a, a point in time where we might not be seeing what we want to see if you're coming from a place like the States, which have much, much be a lot more sensitive to diversity and inclusion uh, compared to in Japan. Definitely. Uh, one of the big, big shocks for me, which I think uh, still happens at meetings or uh, in the office sometimes, when you're talking to especially older men in office or meetings in Japan, quite often, if they're listening, they will lean back and close their eyes. Yeah. And that was a real freak out to me. Like, are they sleeping? Are they even listening? Like, that is so insulting. So that was a big cultural difference. And I've learned over the years, they're listening. They're usually listening. Sometimes they may be sleeping if it's a big meeting. They could be. But, yeah. <laughs> <I'm> probably listening. <laughs> probably listening. They could be. Yeah. yeah. And then. Uh, when I was learning Japanese, you know, I was really trying my hardest to speak very clearly in Japanese. And some sometimes uh, some of my coworkers would go like this when I was speaking. 
because they were they were trying to listen really hard but i was so insulted like my japanese is that bad it's like making it painful just like for oh you. gosh i have a headache just listening to you yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so just, i think just having the idea that people are not usually mean-spirited and just to give people the benefit of the doubt is definitely worth doing <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think that you know one guy i talked to he's from australia he said that he felt like his first you know year in japan uh was that he one one thing you hear people talk about a lot is not getting feedback and um you know they want to create more of a feedback culture so that they can hear what they're doing right or wrong etc cetera, etc cetera. And then he said that he feels like when he's giving a meeting that everybody's like watching a train crash about to happen, but they don't say anything. So he's he he can sense that something is probably not right, but there isn't really like a feedback or engagement around that. And I just got to tell you, I'm so amazed at how many people have so much anxiety around doing presentations in Japan because that lack of people voicing their opinions or giving their, you know, asking their questions or just having more of a collaborative type of uh, meeting structure that really, really just gets people very worried very quickly. So, um, yeah. yeah, I find that to be, you know, very interesting. It's not just like, okay, I'm not hearing from people. It's more like what kind of like stress response does that give for people yeah. who are in that situation? And that whole concept of nimawashi, which my my sister on the show talked about the other day, um, that actually decisions don't get made at the meetings. Yeah, a lot of decisions get announced at meetings and then or discussed a little bit at meetings and then the actual progress on the project happens around the meetings or outside the meetings but also you talk about nomikai and i always find nomikai is a great way to talk more candidly with your colleagues yeah. right yeah exactly so in japan there's definitely like a time and a place uh to speak candidly or to speak uh more kind of, uh, I, I, I was gonna say calculated and that's not the right word, but more carefully depending on, uh, you know, the hierarchical structure that you're involved with. But, you know, another element that's kind of unusual with meetings too is um, I had a, I have a woman who's, who's also an executive and she said that she went to a meeting and she thought she was just gonna talk to her boss, but he also had two other people attend the meeting with them. And she just like, why is this so formal? I'm a big girl. I can I can handle this. Well, you know what she thought was a very casual meeting, but you know sometimes they they find it important to have people listen in on the conversation, so pe more people are kind of on board with with what's happening and and just being there for a listening purpose. So it's interesting what we what we perceive to be necessary. Like how many people should be in this meeting? Uh, what is the objective that we have? You know, I also had one guy say that, you know, the, the purpose of the meeting should be to have some type of takeaway. Otherwise, it's just otherwise, it's just a chat. So he feels like most meetings in Japan are just chats. There's no initial purpose. There's no uh, next steps. There's no opinion he has to voice. He just has to be there for some reason and hear people chat. And that's kind of it. And yeah, I would say like that could be an interesting way of uh, describing it. But there's there's kind of differences in, in opinions of of how meetings should be approached, which is always interesting. 
Yeah, definitely. And I always uh, found meetings to just be a reading of the schedule, a reading of the agenda. Exactly what you have on paper in front of you is exactly what happens in the meeting. Nothing yeah. deviates from that. Nothing is discussed beyond that usually. And that yeah. that was a real culture shock to me because I think coming in from other countries, you have the idea that a meeting is for discussion and debate yeah. and uh, and brainstorming. And that's not usually the function of Japanese business meetings, right? Exactly. And you just said some of the words too, like we have things like briefing, brainstorming, uh, presentation, seminar, talk, like there's so many different ways that you can describe the kind of meeting that you're having. But in Japan, I feel like we don't have that necessarily as much. We just call kind of everything a meeting. So you never know if you're walking into something that's more, you know, discussion oriented, or if it's going to be presentation oriented. Um, yeah, that's definitely what comes up. Yeah, I'd be really interested. We have 10 minutes left. This is such an interesting talk. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd be interested to know if when you work for like the private onboarding or the group onboarding into a company, do you find working with international companies versus more traditional Japanese companies that you have to change the style of coaching a little bit? You know, I really find that the style of coaching might actually differ based on uh, maybe the industry that the person is in. So for example, when I go to a tech firm um, and I'm talking to people, I think they have kind of different set of challenges compared to somebody who is, um, you know, a director at a Japanese, traditional Japanese firm. Um, so someone who's in a tech firm and that's international, maybe they have a lot of uh, very internationally minded Japanese people who are working there who are bilingual, um, where they're, they're a lot more globalized than maybe traditional Japanese people are, but there's still some sort of uh, differences in opinion of procedure. Um, but the in the tech industry, they really value the whole agile approach to working, which is about you know, testing things that aren't perfect, and then, you know, making sure that you can uh, go back and, and fix things along the way. So that's kind of like the nature of the work that they do. Whereas um, someone who's working in a more traditional company, um, maybe it's about understanding more of the traditional, traditional sense, uh, where you're interacting with people who have very limited uh, English language capabilities, you might need to have like a translator involved. Um, so I would say that, the, again, you know, a, a word that's been coming up in our talk is layers. I would say that there's a lot of layers depending on what company the person's at. So it, it, the background of the Japanese people they're working with, are they working with people who have never left Japan, not even for a vacation? Um, are they or are they working with people who have learned English very well and maybe did a study abroad? Are they working with Japanese people who have actually lived abroad before and worked in a, a foreign company and then come back? You know, that that kind of uh, understanding of the person you're interacting with is also really essential um, to help you kind of understand how to navigate your relationship with them. So yeah, to answer your question, I would say it kind of depends on, yes, if it, is it a traditional company, is it international, but also kind of what is the role that the person has at the particular company? And that it makes so much sense that you would have to cater to the type of industry as well, because there's very different requirements for the type of job responsibilities, depending on 
the industry. And you come from the concierge hospitality industry. That's it's really interesting, which kind of applies no matter what industry you're working in, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'd say, yeah, coming from hospitality industry and, you know, the whole customer service element, there was definitely a lot more emphasis placed on, you know, communication styles with with the uh, customers and the exact follow, making sure you follow exact procedures to a T with keeping the customer in mind. Um, just kind of going back to the concept of uh, help, helping people internally in their in their company. Um, another thing I think is interesting is if you are working in tech, let's say, you might be working at a multicultural team. So the only level of interaction you have with Japanese people might be through maybe the sales team or the HR team um, that might be maybe more bureaucratic. So the nature of the day-to-day -day work that you might do might be feel comfortable because you're interacting with other foreigners. However, you still need cross-cultural training because uh, the customers that the company has are Japanese. And to, in order to understand the timeline of the work that you're doing, you need to understand what's happening in the cultures within your, your clients to understand the procedures they're going through and the responses that they're giving to you so that you can better interact with them as well. So there's two components. There's the internal component of dealing with the day-to-day -day work inside your company, but you also have to have a level of understanding of what's happening with your clients as well and how that could affect your work procedure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Very important. Uh, for basic advice for any worker, I love this. What time are you supposed to arrive for a 10 a.m. meeting? Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about that a bit? This is a really funny uh, trivia because um, there isn't really like a specific answer for this. I think I put the answer to the trivia as 10 minutes beforehand. Um, and I remember there was a whole bunch of debate about it on LinkedIn when I posted it. Some people thought five minutes was better. Some people put 30 minutes in advance. And it, and the, the background of the people were different. I had some foreigners were saying, you know, uh, 10 minutes. And I had a Japanese person who would say five minutes or 30 minutes. So it really seemed like there was just a lot of differences in opinion. But the point is that you need to be early. <laughs> the point is you have to be there early. And that includes things like uh, work. Um, so if your work start time is 9 a.m., you need to be ready to work at 9 a.m. You don't want to just come. The, 9 a.m. doesn't mean you walked into the office at, at that time. It means that you've actually set down your bag. You've turned on your computer. You've gotten your coffee. Like everything is already in setup so you can actually start to work um, at that time. Um, and the other thing that was coming to, into play was also... Um, how close your relationship is with the person who you're doing the meeting with. So if you have an internal meeting, then maybe showing up, uh, you know, up to five minutes in advance is a good amount of time. But if you're if you're having an outside client meeting, then you might want to show up like 15 minutes early just to make sure you're at the building on time and you can wait in the lobby and you know just as a way of showing respect that you're you're there and you value the the time that you spend with people you might need to add a little bit more time to that. So uh, yeah, there was a lot of different uh, feedback that I got for this one in particular, but essentially just making sure that you're you're showing up early and that you're actually ready to do the work or ready to engage with people um, at the specified time. I think that's really important. And uh, yeah, uh, Louise from New Zealand says, just don't be on time. Yeah, on time in Japan is late, basically. And I think yeah. this even applies to uh, online work. 
that like if you have a zoom call make sure you are waiting from 10 minutes before and usually they will let you in five minutes before and then you're ready to start your meeting or whatever you're doing online at on time so that's that's yeah. also another hint right yeah and you were talking yourself about you know how you had meetings where there was a very fixed agenda and fo people followed point by point and so you know they also stick to the timelines around that as well so if the if the start time is nine o'clock then that's literally the time people will say okay we're starting our meeting you know let's get settled down and do the introduction so um yeah, I've had meetings with clients too, where um, they already knew in advance that someone was like one party was going to come a little bit late, but th we just went ahead and started uh, exactly like on the mark. So yeah, definitely really important element. Yeah. And you can see the general uneasiness if somebody who's supposed to be at the meeting is not there on time when they're yes. about to start, right? That is really yeah. a big business or even interpersonal faux pas in Japan, right? Yeah, I actually <laughs> went to, I did a cross-cultural training once where um, I was all, I was ready like 15 minutes early and then 10 minutes beforehand, Japanese people came into the room and sat down. And then at the start time, we still didn't have the foreigners. And I was like, where, where is everybody? And so, um, you know, my, my client told me to just wait a little bit. And then I had like a few people come in and then the majority of people came in 20 minutes late. And I think the concepts, because this company doesn't make it mandatory, it's kind of like, okay, here's the session. I'll just attend whatever time I can attend. Whereas the people who had decided that they were going to dedicate their time to it, they wound up showing up early because they knew they would participate for the whole thing. Um, so yeah, I had to tell everybody in advance. I was like, look, you know, you have some people have waited essentially 30 minutes because I couldn't just start doing a multi cross-cultural training with only, uh, you know, the Japanese side and then have to repeat myself when, you know, the, the foreign side came in. So uh, yeah, that, that was essentially the first topic we talked about <laughs> was punctuality and, uh, and, and you know, when to arrive. Yeah, and we have a question yeah. from Brett. Uh, has the pandemic yeah. and so many people working from home changed work culture at all? And do you think this will remain? Yeah. So do you see that? Great question. Yeah, I would say that when I do uh, some some companies, I'm I'm doing some health coaching with as well for some of their employees. And I would say the number one source of stress that I hear pr primarily from Japanese people is communication by doing remote work. Because in Japan, um, they don't have people don't use verbal language or email form of communication as their primary form of communication. A lot of times you need to be able to read people's body language as a way of understanding how to read between the lines. So, um, you know, some people I know, like one woman joined her company back in June, which was kind of right when we were in the thick of the very early stages of the pandemic. And she's like, okay, I, I'm reading this email from my boss and I don't know if he means to do it this way or to do it that way. I can't see his face. And, you know, that's really kind of added to a lot of uh, stress. So I think that, um, I think that the positive thing we've gotten from, from this COVID situation is that Japanese companies have been able to experiment with doing the remote work. I think that would have never happened unless everybody was forced to do it in this way. I mean, I've been hearing people talk about, you know, giving seminars on the benefits of flex time for the last at least decade. And uh, it seems like, you know, only very small percentage of companies that were mostly international were even trying to implement that. 
Um, and I remember hearing a, a talk by a woman from Google who was talking about how if she needs to take care of her her kid who's sick at home, she'll just switch to a virtual meeting instead of an in-person meeting. And that sounded very like revolutionary, like this idea that you could just, you know, keep staying at home and then like, you know, turn on your computer and have your have your group meeting. Um, so I think going forward, I think it just really depends on the company. I think that uh, companies are now more sensitive to understanding how this remote work uh, can work. And I think that it's definitely going to help out a lot of people who have issues related to child care and elderly care. Um, you know, one one issue you hear a lot from women is trying to do work life balance with a with a child at home and, and working and, and taking care of a kid. But another problem you hear from men is trying to take care of older relatives, um, especially if you're not married. So I think that um, companies will at least be able to leverage remote work um, to make accommodation for people who who need to have a little bit more work life balance in that circumstance. But uh, when it comes to communication alone, I don't think it'll be 100% like how it is right now during this pandemic. I definitely think some companies are going to try to get back into the office a little bit more. One, one thing that's been surprising to have meetings online is sometimes you'll see, you'll have a meeting with someone online and they're still wearing a mask and it confuses me. And then I, I remember, yeah. actually, there's other reasons people used to wear masks even before coronavirus. <laughs> maybe they didn't shave. Maybe they didn't do their makeup, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. I actually, I so this trivia that I put out, so a lot of them I schedule way far in advance. And before the, um, the pandemic happened, I had a trivia about mask wearing. So I said, you know, why, what are reasons people wear masks aside from being sick? And some of it's just you didn't put on your makeup, so you don't want to go to the, corn, the, the grocery store without, you know, uh, people seeing uh, your not made up face. Or maybe it's just because people don't want to catch something or it could just be allergy related. There's just so many other reasons. And um, that particular trivia wound up going out after there was all this mask debate happening. Um, in other parts of the world and so it's like oh what an interesting timing for that to come out you know people have already been very used to using it um, as you can see so well wonderful thank you so much for all your insights it was a great conversation not only about yeah. uh the coaching that you do but also about japanese culture so thank you so much yeah, yeah thank you i really appreciate uh, appreciate being here so thank you so much for having me and thanks to everybody for the questions uh that you have submitted i uh, really appreciate that as well yeah we had some great questions and comments today thank you everyone for joining if you're interested in learning more about what Catherine is doing have a look at her website let me see if i can bring it up here so you can see it bigger so it's thrivetokyo.com is that right Yes, thrivetokyo.com. Go check it out. I also have a little free freebie thing there for understanding about uh, workplace concepts. It's like a three-part um, masterclass that you can take a look at. And yeah, and you can find all the goodies for the trivia questions um, on the blog section as well. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, everybody. Um, have a great weekend. We don't have a talk tomorrow. I'm going to go and do some research at farmers markets. So I might do a live Very from nice. there. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend and see you next week. Thank you, Catherine. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com 
sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, buy me a coffee, coffee or haps. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.